the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli. That's Bud Elliott. I'm Chip Patterson. Uh, Danny Cannell, he is uh, getting that getting that back worked out right now. We just, uh, just just had a little pre-show meeting with him. It, it was great to see his face. Uh, he sends his warmest regards. Uh, and, of course, um, thanks to all of you who are watching YouTube.com slash Cover 3 all across the 24-7 Sports Facebook network. Come and uh, why don't you just smash that like button? We are going to have a very special mailbag episode today because... Hang around with us. At the end of the show, we are going to be taking live audience mailbag questions. So smash the like button, and if we get those likes up, maybe we'll just jump in even before we're done with our pre-scheduled questions. Uh, Again, the like button is the best way to go ahead and get us answering the live audience questions faster. Otherwise, we'll do it at the end of the show. So come in, kick your feet up, and uh, hang around. All right. Uh, Any... I wanted to circle back on this this one headline before we dive into the big old bag of mail, Bud, because we had it on our uh, rundown, but we were we had a great time talking about Texas and the family business in uh, the last episode, but we missed out. I wanted to get your opinion real quick. Chris Vizina, 2023 quarterback, four-star uh, at 24-7 Sports, commits to the Clemson Tigers. Um you know, he. It, I, I wanted to get your read on him as a prospect and sort of what that means in something that you have talked about on the Cover Three podcast uh, with some of your colleagues at Twenty Four Seven Sports. The recruiting dominoes when it comes to the quarterbacks. Where does he fit in that picture, and uh, and what is Clemson going to be getting with his commitment? Yeah, so Vizina is a really solid prospect. He, he's he's got a good arm. He, he's got nice touch. He, he moves around well. I think in other years, he would probably rank higher in terms of like the numerical ranking of quarterbacks, right? So, you know, he's not a top five QB uh, in this given year because this is a pretty loaded QB year. But you stick him in that Rattler class, right, where it was pretty obvious that the talent uh, was down. Just I know we talked about that a lot, but it was such a a, a kind of a a contrast between the the Lawrence Fields, Daniels year and then the, you know, other year. I think Clemson is doing a great job here of stacking quarterbacks. I mean, you can think what you want to think about DJ, and I think some of the criticisms are are warranted. And then they go out and get Klubnik, and now they get Vizina. It, it's just a numbers game. If you stack everybody, eventually somebody's going to hit. It, it's really hard to screw that up if you just stack four and five stars, especially at the quarterback position, on top of each other. Now the question will become who transfers out, essentially. Um, I know and- Clemson does a great job keeping people in-house, but there's only one ball. So we're going to have to see, see what goes down here. And remember, if you enter the transfer portal, Dabo will not take you back unless you go to Northwestern first, and then you can come back. As Look, a coach, I've only known, yeah. I've only known about Vizina for like a week and a half, 
But he seems to be that perfect combination of the Clemson OKG while also being a blue chip and really talented. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, and I know Steve Wilfong did a great job breaking down the quarterback dominoes uh, again. And we just keep rerunning that article every, every time a, uh, a big-time QB commits, and you really can't talk enough QBs because if you don't have one, you're in trouble. So everybody reads it. All right, let's uh, let's go ahead and dive into the big old bag of mail. A reminder, if you would like to add your question to a future mailbag episode, the best way to do it is go and leave us a five-star review. And in that review, put your question. Uh, we will add it to the big old bag of mail, tackle it in a future mailbag episode. This question comes from Bob from IT. Uh, here we go. Love the show. It reignited my interest in college football, especially on the recruiting side of things. Nice. I have a two-part question. Number one, your conversation about Miami, Florida, and Florida State led me to wonder, what is the average amount of teams that a state can sustain? I think of a state like Michigan that can sustain three to four quality teams, and as a Charlotte fan, I need to keep up some false hope that we'll be decent at one point in the future. Then the second part of the question, uh, leading to my second part, um, I know that getting recruits in your, quote, backyard is crucial. How do smaller F FBS brands keep recruits from their area? I'm thinking about Charlotte. We are currently hemorrhaging recruits out of the Charlotte area, but even also about schools like Boston College, UAB, Memphis, Houston, Cincinnati, and more. Thanks for your insight, and thanks for holding down the 919 chip. Uh, so I thought the state was a, a very interesting uh, look because we can take it all over the place and then we can get a little bit more into some of these group of five programs that live in recruiting hotbeds but are seeing some of those recruits go to bigger programs. So how many programs do you think one state can be able to maintain, and let's say like at, at a quality level, we don't need to say peak efficiency. I know that's a phrase we use around here a lot, but at least at an above average quality level, how many programs do you think can be running at one time in one state? I mean, I think it depends on the state. Like, there's a whole lot of factors that you have to consider. Like, California, Texas, and Florida, if they were able to keep all their players, would be able to sustain a lot of good, above-average quality programs. The problem is, like, when you're at Florida, like, this is where the question's about with Florida, Florida State, Miami, you have those three. You also have UCF. But what you also have is every other program in the country coming to take your players. And the same thing happens in Texas and the same thing happens in California. But I think I would say just as a general rule, that's not really accurate, but I feel like it kind of gets to the heart of the question Two. <laughs> yeah, it, it really, it, it's, it's sort of an impossible question to answer, unfortunately. And it's a great question, right? Um, I mean, you'd have to just kind of go state by state, like Maine, zero, Alaska, yeah, right. zero, uh, you know, the Dakotas, zero. I mean, um, Louisiana is the like an interesting one because depending on how you like the the raging Cajun cycling up under Billy Napier changed that from one to like one and a half. And I do think yeah. that the Florida example, we only have what that one sort of era and it was an era. What, like 10, 12 years where all three of those programs were all running uh, at peak efficiency or close to it. But for the most part. It has not been the case where all three are on top all at the same time outside of that ten to twelve years. Am I am I wrong about that? No, I I think you're really right about that. And and I might take a little bit of issue even with like that ten to twelve year. Like like it was generally you had one team within that span that was somewhat down. It was either you know Florida early '90s coming off the the, the sanctions that they had in the '80s and they really hadn't figured out some of the defense stuff yet. 
when, when Spurrier first got there. Too. Like pre- right, when Spurrier left. Yeah. Um, you know, Miami in, in 96 got hit with the sanctions there. Uh, and then basically they didn't really get back back until like 99 with Butch Davis. Uh, so it's really, really tough. Um, I think there's probably three states that could maybe sustain two teams like that are in the running for a national title. Florida, Texas, and California. Georgia potential, and I, I'm a little yeah, sketchy Georgia, on Cali. I think Georgia could. It's just I don't if know. Tech didn't have the academics. Yeah, yeah. If they could take from a broader pool of players, I think you're exactly right, Tom. Like Georgia could. Other than that, it's pretty much one. Now people will state, "Hey, Bama and Auburn have absolutely played for the right to go play for a title," and they did. I think like last time in 2013. So it's kind of a weird one that they care a whole lot about football in that state. They kind of uh, exceed the natural resources of the state, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, it's so hard because, like, Louisiana, you stick any of those teams in Louisiana in a Power 5 league, and they're not successful or thriving, right? Can so, Texas get to three? Can Texas have more than – I don't think so. I I, I think it depends too, like on your goal. Like if the question is just above average, good, solid programs, yeah. If it's how many teams can one state produce that are competing for national titles, none of them are going to be able to do more than two at a time. I think you're yeah. right about that. Two's probably your cap. Okay, mm-hmm. so for Bob from IT, he is a Charlotte 49ers fan, and he was asking, and this can sort of bridge into what the 49ers and, and what some of these other programs that live in recruiting hotbeds and are seeing those prospects go elsewhere. Like North Carolina has North Carolina and NC State, and it's got Wake Forest, and it's got Duke, and it's uh, r- just north of a very good and burgeoning Coastal Carolina program. It includes App State, one of the best programs in the Sun Belt, and now Charlotte's trying to look for some of that as well. Is is there a, a way that Charlotte's going to be able to find success uh, in a crowded state when it comes to FBS football? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Tom. Go ahead, because I I I, I, t- I think I took it a different way than Tom did. So Tom, go first on this. Sorry, I would I would just say that like like the question, the way he phrased it was like you know I got I we watch like all these other programs come in and just steal all the local talent, and it's like well they're not stealing them. These kids want to go to those programs for reasons because they're more established programs. Charlotte is a new FBS program without really any kind of foothold. So if you're Charlotte, the odds of you getting to that level with all the history that those programs have and also the conference that you play in, it's not great. But what you have to do is you have to take the kids that nobody else wants, or at least not the other, you know, the other programs are kind of looking over. You have to find the three stars and below the kids who aren't being as heavily recruited, but who you see something with that you could fit and mold and develop. And that's what like Charlotte, if it's going to have success, that's what they have to do there. They have to be a development program, the get old and stay old philosophy. And then with the era of the transfer portal, plug and play holes, maybe from guys who have transferred, who went to North Carolina or NC state originally and just couldn't find a place to the field there. Go bring them in, bring them into your program and find spots for them. And then you could compete within your conference. But as far as being that kind of power five program, your odds are very much against you ever getting there. Exactly right. Um, I took it more as a process question, if we can go there for for a moment, Um, as far as like talent identification. So you may, you know, Charlotte may have their camp and and Will Healy, you know, there and they've got a kid who they think is really good. There's a couple ways you can play this. One, you can recruit the kid hard. 
realizing that you're not going to likely get them once some of the big boys get on the kid. But that may be a cool thing to do anyway, because you can impress your boosters. Hey, look, look at this kid. You show him these articles on 24-7 Sports. He's given us a lot of love. I think it's going to be a long shot. We're going to fight our best. That's great, as long as you realize it's an act, and you have to make sure you have somebody you can sign in the background. So finding somebody who will actually say yes to you and then show up to the dance uh, with you is really, really important. And sometimes like you do see teams continue to recruit guys who they're just not going to get. Like an example that I saw up close and personal was Willie Taggart continuing to try to get Evan Neal. And I know there are people that told that staff, you guys ain't getting Evan Neal. Like it it ain't happening. Look look at the season you're having. That that kid's not going to take a chance. He's going to go to Bama. Uh, And he, he did. Um, So you got to like finding the sweet spot of who you can actually get is really important so that you're not wasting your time on your choice A who really can't, you're really not going to be able to get. And then by the time you get to option B or C, you're late to the party. Even if if option B and C is really should have been your A because you have to signability is an important factor here. Do you give, uh, he mentioned Boston College as another one of those. I know that you've said you think Jeff Halfley does a good job of identifying guys that even if they're not going to end up at Boston College, he does seem to at least have a beat on getting in early on players that are going to end up being uh, signees at bigger programs. Yeah, he, he, he Jeff Athlete in Boston College rate pretty well. I, I, it's not an official metric, but it's something I, I do track as far as who, who was you know one of the among the first to offer these kids before the you know Bama and Georgia and Ohio State sweep in, and uh, yeah, they, they do a really nice job there. But I don't think that they waste all their time trying to sign kids who they're not going to get. Can the state of Illinois have more than one? Uh, it could theoretically, but it's kind of like a situation with Georgia, although Illinois doesn't have nearly the same amount of talent as Georgia does, but it's got the one different, different main prospect. public state school, and then it's got a smaller private, higher academic kind of restriction school. So it'd be hard for them to do both. And then plus, like Florida and Georgia deal with like the top programs in the Midwest and you know, like the Big Ten and Notre Dame, they come and they take a lot of the top talent out of the state because this two programs like in Illinois haven't really given those kids reason to like be like, this is where I need to go. Like kind of just mentioned with Evan Neal, there's an offensive lineman from East St. Louis, Miles McVeigh, who's a highly rated four star, who, you know, he released his top twelve earlier this week and Illinois is on it. But, you know, so is Auburn, Florida, LSU, Alabama, USC, Michigan, Oklahoma. Like, he's not going to Illinois. So it's like if you're an Illinois coaching staff, it's like, hey, great, we're in his top 12, but we probably shouldn't put too much effort into trying to convince him to come here. Uh, Before we get to the next question, shout out to Kyle in the chat. Uh, He has identified we have only 20 more Thursdays until week one locks. Hey, since I got to jump a little bit early today to do HQ, uh, ben and Sam want to know: uh, Can we get Tom play some bass here on, on a like dead off season Thursday mailbag before Easter? No, not right now. <laughs> All right, uh, you wouldn't be able to hear it anyway. It's like it's a bass; it's not a guitar unless it's plugged in. You can't really hear it. We want bass. No, no, no. It, it actually would just sound uh, real, just like metallicy and slappy. Yeah. Like that's uh-huh. all you would hear is like the sound yeah. of the fingers. So it'd basically be like Fieldy from Corn and the way that he played bass. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, yeah. All right, let's. Uh, this next question comes from Coach Groot. Hi guys, as a college golf coach, the transfer portal has become a big part of my recruiting. 
It's so intriguing just how many kids are in the portal on a daily basis across all sports, not just football. My question for y'all has two parts. Number one, which of the Power 5 schools do you feel like has been hurt by the portal or have struggled to get quality players in? Number two, of the G5 teams, which have succeeded in using the portal to their advantage. Love the show and great work, guys. Thanks, Coach Groot. College golf coach. Listening in. Love it. There you go. I love it. Um, okay, so schools that have been Auburn. hurt by, by the portal. Auburn. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who's had a co- like anybody who's had a coaching change uh, or per- expected coaching change, Auburn for sure. Um, I'll go Stanford here because of their admission standards. It's really hard for them to get players in. Additionally, Stanford uh, loses a ton of guys to grad transfer. Uh, because it's just almost uh, understood that most of the kids who go to Stanford are not going to be able to uh, get accepted into Stanford's grad programs. So a lot of times you'll see a Stanford player who's a good player transfer out. You're like, well, why? It's like, well, he ran out of out of his his undergraduate classes. Um, you know, he, he he's not going to be able to get into grad school. He's got to go. He's got to go somewhere. Um, so generally, like teams that have really tough admission standards are not going to be super high on taking transfers. I would argue Clemson probably, but that's really just a decision, you know, and maybe not a wrong one. Like they can do what they want to do. They, they value culture over, over roster churn, but I do think uh, they could have really could have used a slot receiver last year. Um, but yeah, those are some off the top of my head. I would say Colorado has been hurt by transfers. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, it's, yeah, I think it's it's going to be a rotating deal where it's going to be certain programs at certain times are getting hurt by it, some are being helped by it. I don't know. Like, I think that you're right with like a school like Stanford and schools with higher academic restrictions. They're going to have a much harder time overall because a lot of the kids that are out there just, you know, like everybody else can't get into those schools, even if they relax the standards just a little bit. What about the uh, the second part of that, of the group of five teams which have succeeded in using the portal to their advantage? Oh, okay. I'm trying to think here. I think Utah State did a great job this offseason, kind of just going in conference and taking away some of its most important players from a division rival and be like, all right, come play for us instead. For sure. Um, Fresno with, with Jake Hayner would, would stand out in yeah. this regard, for sure. Um I mean, App, App State went and got a transfer quarterback, and, and he worked out extremely well for them. Um, trying to think here, Cincinnati was not really transfer heavy. Boise hasn't gone insane with the transfers. Yes, that's. The, I feel like group of five programs for the most part are going to be hurt by players leaving, and they're going to benefit as much from bringing players in because I just think that that's going to be the niche. They're going to get guys who go the power five route and quote unquote yeah. wash out and then drop down a level, but it's, they're not going to really find impact guys. They're going to find guys to help fill spots and fill roster holes for the year while they develop other guys that they're recruiting. And then they're going to suffer because their best players are typically going to move up. So this is like, it's not the, 
mid-tier group of five. I mean, it is undoubtedly top tier. And for one of these programs, they will be in the power five. But I thought UCF I had as a program that has utilized yep. the portal very well. Yeah. And then, you know, talk about an impact player, Kamar Wheaton, who we've talked about on this program, committed to SMU, sort of, you know, something that we thought might be in the works. So that's a, that is another example of... But that was know, a trade more than anything because they got Kamar Wheaton, <laughs> but they lost what's-his-name to Ole Miss. So it's Bentley, like, yeah, they, use, they, they lose Bentley, Bentley and they get Wheaton. Yeah, but they sent Bentley to Ole Miss. Wheaton's from Alabama. Just a general like, a, like it's like a baseball West. trade where they traded the established veteran who was reaching arbitration and was getting too much money, and they brought in the the highly rated prospect who's yet to see the field. <laughs> but um, I, here's one for you, uh, WKU. Mm, they, they, they got they got an entire offense. Yeah, mm-hmm. offensive coordinator, quarterback, wide receiver, everything. UAB isn't quite the same because of, of the timeline of their program restart, but UAB certainly with transfers, maybe not transfer portal, uh, but transfers really rebuilt that thing in short order. Yeah, who's been, as a general answer, I do feel like who's been hurt by the transfer portal is almost always tied either to hot seat or straight up coaching change situations. You know, Virginia Tech, yeah. even before Fuente was fired, the, the year before just was bleeding out uh, transfers and including Hendon Hooker, you know, most notably, but uh, but several others as well. And there there might be other examples, but if you want to look at one program or a team that is uniquely damaged, I feel like the stability of the head coach situation is normally uh, a big part of that. Here, here's a fun question from Coca in, in our private chat. How do we feel about South Florida getting 14 transfers but still ranking outside the top 40 in transfer classes? Wow. Well, they were number one. They were number one (laughs) for a minute. USF had the number one ranked transfer class when they had like 11 guys and Mm -hmm. nobody else had more than like three. And I think maybe two or three of them are former Clemson players, a.k.a. the head coach there, Jeff Scott, former Clemson offensive coordinator, just going right back into his phone because he doesn't delete numbers and, you know, getting in touch with the guys that that might want to get out. I just think it's funny that Coca lands one transfer in JT Daniels at West Virginia. And now he's like, all right, start st- time to start taking shots at all these other programs. I, I will say, like, some of these guys, um, it, it, if they hit, they're very much, like, above AAC level. Like, if some a, of a Joe, the transfers. Joe, like, like oh, they, yeah, they got yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, like, that guy, I know he's going back to, you know, kind of the area where, where he's, I guess, technically from. I thought it's, he's technically from Canada. Um, well, right, but he, he went to school at at, at uh, um, uh, CCI, so down in Clearwater, or CAI, excuse me. Um, I, it's not a bad class, you know. It's just like I like James Gordon at, at, at a Minnesota. I thought he was really really productive for Plant City. They're just not they're not impact guys at the Power Five level. It's also, I mean, very tough for me to look at any program cracking that top two to three, four in that conference. Like, mm-hmm. can USF cycle out of the basement? Yes. I do think that you are, I think you are still, should. yeah, I, th- I think you're still um, a year, you're still a year away at least until you're, you're starting to apply for that penthouse application. I would agree. Coming up on the other side. 
We talk a lot about you know the West Coast football and West Coast college football and wh- how college football is better when we've got a uh, Pac-12 with playoff contenders, national championship contenders. So let's take a closer look at USC, Oregon in the context of West Coast dominance. All that and more next. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Back here. Th- and remember, hang around. We will be taking live audience questions. Oh, and Tom's going to play the bass. Yes, let's do it. Now, this is why it was pointless to do this, because can you actually hear anything that's happening right now? Yes. You can? A little bit. bit. All right. Only the strings closer to the head of of the bass. (laughs) You you mentioned corn, so let's let's do the end of blind real quick, because I haven't played in about two months, so I'm not very good right now. There you go. I played bass for you. Yes. Nice. Yes. But not enough for us to get a copyright strike on YouTube. So perfect. no, exactly. That is that's threading the needle right there. Also, there's been like a Tom's bass watch in the chat for mm-hmm. two weeks. That thing is so out of tune right now. So now it's been moved. Everyone's like, wait, <laughs> wait, like, the, the bass is still in the same spot. And because, like you mentioned, it's been about two months, but now you you slapped the bass here on the Cover Three podcast. Legend, I'm going to get a blister for playing five notes now. Because see, that's the thing about playing bass; like you need like fingers of steel. Next, going to be like you're going to drink one of the Coca Colas. I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of those forty year old Coca Colas. At yeah. least it's yeah. in the uh, the glass bottle. I've we've oh. got uh, some friends who. Uh, they, they got the cans, like the championship Coca-Cola cans, and it like starts to ooze out a little bit. It's mm-hmm. not, not, not good. All right, let's uh, – here we go. This question – here we go. Thanks for all the great content. The recent recruiting shows have been a great addition as well. Question. It's constantly been stated that USC is the key to Pac-12 and West Coast football. I agree that the sport is better with USC being a powerhouse. However – I think that undermines how consistent Oregon has been. Comparison since 1990, 
Oregon has won 69% of its games. Nice. Has been to the national championship game twice, has nine conference champions. In that same time period, since 1990, USC has won 66% of its games, has won the conference 10 times, does have two uh, national title game appearances like Oregon, but one national championship. Why do we assume that USC will just go back to dominating college football? Can we agree that Oregon is just as important as USC in West Coast football? I I do not agree with that. Um, and here's why. Despite all this NIL stuff, and that's very important, you still have to have a lot of talent from home. Last year, Oregon had two count them, two four-star or better prospects in the state of Oregon. Zero in the national top 100. Only one in the top 247. Distance from home is still a really big factor for recruits, even with the NIL game and the shadow kind of NIL bag game and all that stuff. It is still a really big factor. You are still almost always moving away from home for the first time in a way that like NFL free agency, we don't see it. Although we see it in baseball. Some like, like Seattle has a tough time, you know, signing players from the Caribbean at times. We have to over really overpay for them to you know get them to go that far away from home. It is just tougher to get kids to go to Oregon than it is to USC. And it is tougher to keep them there because homesickness can be a real thing. And because it's not easy for mom and dad to get to the game. You know, like it's just way, way out there. I love going out to Oregon. I really miss when Nike had the opening out in Oregon as opposed to having it in, you know, Jerry World Dallas stuff. Um, like I, I don't look forward to going to Dallas and you know sitting in, in, in a parking lot for like a thousand degrees every summer. Oregon was cool. Like I really yeah, liked it. Yeah, let's there. go tear up the Frisco bars. But I'm not 18. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it like demographics of Oregon are, are are not similar to a lot of areas that produce a lot of really good football recruits. Obviously, like that's a duh statement when I noted just how many or how few players come from up there. Um, so, I, well, I think Oregon is to be applauded for their consistency. I do think USC has a ceiling that Oregon doesn't have. If they're both running at peak efficiency, I don't think that Oregon is the same. But Oregon's fighting like crazy. They they just got Josh Connerly, right? right? Like that's a huge huge win. Like like Dan Lanning and those dudes are not going down without a fight. Like they they pulled that one. That was impressive, uh, but I do think USC has a higher ceiling, just because of the talent in a in a drivable area. You know, it's it's just not there. I think one way to kind of frame what you're saying too, and it, I, it's not it's not exactly what happened, but it's just a thing to consider. Chip Kelly, when he was at Oregon, left for the NFL, and part of the reason he said that he was leaving for the NFL was you know the recruiting. Didn't didn't enjoy doing it as much. Just pain in the butt to recruit, all that kind of stuff. When he comes back to college, now it's because it didn't work in the NFL. So if he wanted to keep coaching somewhere, it was going to be college. Where did he go? Los he Angeles. Had, exactly. So it's not as difficult to recruit in Los Angeles as it is in Eugene, Oregon. If you want a player, now obviously you still have to recruit against USC and other programs and all that kind of stuff, but it's not as tough of a sell to convince a kid to come to Los Angeles as it is to convince a kid to come to Eugene. 
That said, I do agree with the questioner in that it's important for both Oregon and USC to be good for the Pac-12. Because if you just have USC, like look at how the ACC has been viewed the last few years where it was just Clemson laying waste to everybody. It's like, well, okay, they're getting to the playoff, but nobody considered the ACC to be a strong conference. Everybody was saying, well, Clemson's got an easy path. They don't have to play anybody. So, and as soon as Clemson slips up a little bit, they get thrown to the side. They can't afford a loss. So I think just overall, it is important to have, whether it's Oregon or USC or anybody else, to have two strong programs for the strength of the conference, for the national relevance, to keep them in the conversation and to give them a place at the table. And also, once you kind of get that established and Oregon keeps winning, and that's another part of the problem, too, that they've had, whereas, you know, they had Chip Kelly, they were winning, he leaves. Helfrich comes in, doesn't really experience the same kind of success, although they did get to the playoff, but he gets fired. Mario comes in, starts building things back up. He leaves. Now Lanning comes in. There's been so much turnover at that coaching spot that it's been hard for them to find the kind of consistency that they need besides the results, but just within the doors of the program, the consistency in that building to make it a more attractive destination for a player to come to. Because if I'm going to be leaving home, if I'm a kid from you know Miami, and I'm going to go play in Oregon, I would probably be more inclined to make that decision if I really liked it there, if I could feel confident that the coach and all that staff that's there right now will still be there by the time my career is done. Two straight coaches, Tom, have left for places with better talent. Yeah. Not only did not only Taggart, Mario, yep. Taggart mm-hmm. did as well. You know, And like that, I remember that being some of the debate about the landing candidacy was, is he going to want to go, quote-unquote, back home to Georgia you know, or, or, or back east? And like the guys who have succeeded there – they did a tremendous job recruiting. I mean, like you could say what you want about, about Taggart Mario on field coaching and program management, and how easy or not easy is it work for those dudes. Those guys, those guys know how to recruit. Like that's what got them jobs initially. So you have to just recruit your butt off to be, to be top 10 at Oregon. Like that's an amazing job recruiting. I think that it's also the, I was going back and I was looking at USC was running things and that period when Oregon was on the rise, they had to get past USC. And those Oregon-USC games were massive. And they felt like they had a lot of implications. There was a lot of narrative packed into it. But the idea was that if Oregon was going to get to the top of the Pac-12, if Oregon was going to be able to get to national championship games, they had to dethrone USC. It, now USC has to do it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Now USC has to get past Oregon, and that's that's why, like like you said, Tom, to have them both, they are very very different. They are on different you know parts, you know, way up north, and then all the way as south as you can get. Uh, to be able to have both running as powerhouses is phenomenal yeah. for creating some balance in the national college football landscape. Yeah, the Pac-12 needs like USC Oregon to be an event that people outside right. of the Pac-12 care about. Yeah, right. And it was like when Chip mm-hmm. Kelly had things rolling on the way up, the, the Chip Kelly, Pete Carroll, like the, those, those games were huge. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. All right, let's go. This man, this, this thing was just, just right up the middle. This is a question from Mr. Johnny Dunn and it, it is, it's pretty basic, but it's fun. And it brings me to something else I want to say in just a little bit. But uh, if 2019 LSU, hypothetically played 2020 Alabama in the postseason on a neutral field. What do you think would be the result? LSU. More often than not. I don't think either one's crushing the other. I agree with that. Um, 
I could probably be a pretty close game. The thing is, I trust what I saw from LSU more because of the gauntlet that it went through mm-hmm. and because, well, I think Bama was clearly the best team in that year. That is a funky year for results across mm-hmm. all sports because uh, of the COVID thing. You know what I mean? So I, it is yep. hard for me to say just how good that Bama team was. I think they were really damn good. They also like clearly were on a mission and I think had a big advantage over some other teams in, in the sport as far as like how much they practiced in the offseason together. Not not you know alleging like coaching staff later or anything, but like you know those guys got together and all really worked together in a way that I'm not really sure other teams were. Um, so I'm going to take LSU in a close game. I agree with Tom. Yeah, I think for me, like the biggest deciding factor is both offenses are really good. Both offenses had plenty of talent on them, but like if it comes down and like we said, it's going to probably be a close game, and I need a quarterback to make a play. I'm going to take Joe Burrow over Mac Jones. And I like Mac Jones a lot. Like I had, I was high on Mac Jones the entire time. I had to, I had to put Barton in his place about Mac Jones. He wanted to bench Mac Jones for some guy. Was he a, young? Was he a bus driver or a fighter pilot? <laughs> he was a bus driver. <laughs> but like, yeah, I just think that, like, um, I, I just think I, I trust Joe Burrow more in those spots than I would in Mac Jones in that game. That's really all it comes down to. I think Alabama's defense is better than LSU's defense. I think that yeah, I don't think it matters when you have the dudes that LSU had on that offense. Do you think any of them are getting stops? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't either. You think you think this it's forty five, forty two? Yeah, it's yeah. which but, offense? Which offense screws up? That team is going to lose. I mean, look look at the game in Tuscaloosa in nineteen. Is mm-hmm. is twenty twenty is twenty twenty Bama really mu- that much better than twenty nineteen Bama? No, I don't think so. I think so. Oh, uh, okay. yes, I do think so. I do think it's better than 2019 Bama. I do think that we had we had fully because uh, that's that's us fully running our course with Tua, right? End of 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I think Mac. I think Mac Jones in in his place in that moment in that 2020 season was a more effective quarterback than Tua was in the 2019 season. Are we assuming Waddle is healthy? By the way, yes. That's an important thing here because he was not healthy down the stretch for for Bam. Obviously, you know he got hurt. Um, we did make the argument when we were talking about best teams to not win a national championship that Ohio State in 2019 might have actually been the best team. Yeah, I don't think there was any debate in 2020 that Alabama was the best team. Uh, yeah, but also if you look at Alabama in 2020, and again, this is not a very good way to do the comparisons, but like. LSU, like the only close game they played that I can really recall was that Alabama game. Like they blew everybody else out, and that includes Georgia, Oklahoma, and Ohio. LSU and LSU. Oh, yeah. Auburn! Auburn, a- Auburn gave them hell. Kevin that, Steele had a good yeah, run. Got that game, yeah. But like for the for the most part, LSU was just absolutely housing everybody that season. Whereas Alabama nearly lost to Florida in the SEC title game. That's true. Um. I mean, L- 2019 LSU is one of my favorite college football teams of all time. But I'm, I'm going to say I'm, I'll take Bama. All right. Wow. To, I think to, if you gave me points with either team, I'm probably just taking the points. Yeah. Probably. It's a cop out. But like. <laughs> uh, all right. Now is the time that we have promised. So live audience questions. Almost 
anything is fair game. So go ahead and uh, and and drop your question in the chat right now, uh, and go ahead and, and smash that like button while you're here. We appreciate it uh, in advance. Texas I already did played give, the base, so don't ask me to do that again. Texas did give LSU a run, uh, and for my score, I would what, go forty minutes, like forty nine, forty two. All right, uh, here we go. This question is all right. A reflective question from Adam uh, for the guys. What was the craziest sporting event or game you were able to experience? For me, being a UNC student and beating Duke in the Final Four, I will remember that night forever. Mine's kind of similar to that one. Illinois, Arizona, Elite Eight, Rosemont Horizon, Allstate Arena, the comeback with Darren Williams and Dee Brown in 2005 where they were down, what was it, like 12 and with like three minutes left and they came back to win the game. That was the craziest event I've ever been to. I do think that that 2013 Rose Bowl with the comeback against Auburn uh, was like being on the field for that was was pretty interesting because it was so crazy. And at, at, at the end, it was you kind of knew what they were going to run because they talked about it all week. Like, you know, hey, if, if, they, if we get down here in the tight zone, Auburn is very vulnerable to play action because they their backers shoot gaps on run immediately. And it's like, all right, they saved a timeout because because. Uh, uh, you know, Chad Abrams got out of bounds, and Benjamin done. But it it was almost anticlimactic in a way because like once they got once they got the pass interference, like I got four shots in a timeout with a minute. So, um, but that was crazy. Like Kermit Whitfield's kickoff return, a fake punt actually working. Auburn had FSU signals, which was absolutely insane. Once they put the Gatorade towels up, their yards per play like more than tripled, which is. You know, be, that would have been pretty crazy if they lost a national title game because, uh, yeah. I will say another one. 2005 was a hell of a year. Uh, that wasn't crazy. Did you go to that? The Illinois-Arizona game? Oh, yeah, uh, was, yes. That's, that is what I was talking about. Yes. Yeah. No, uh, Rose Bowl. no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, but the World Series that year. Like it wasn't a crazy game as far as Illinois Arizona standards or anything like that, but the game two of the World Series between the White Sox and the Astros, when Scott Podsednik hit the walk off, I felt like my soul was going to leave my body and I was going to ascend directly to heaven when that happened. <laughs> um, I like I've, I've I normally run off, uh, you know, being in the stadium for Deshaun against Lamar in 2016, that same season for. Uh, Deshaun to Renfro to win the national championship. The next year, I was there for Tua uh, in overtime against Georgia. But honestly, in 2019, this, just being in the building, the second round game between Duke and UCF when it was Taco Fall against Zion, and everybody had done freaking tail of the tapes on this. And on the opposite sideline is Johnny Dawkins, you know, Duke all time, Duke great, somebody who Coach Krzyzewski loves. And you know, everything about that 2019 Duke team was out of this world and, and oversized and so much hype building into it. And UCF almost won that game. UCF played so well and even had uh, Andre Dawkins. I think it was Andre. Uh, one of Johnny Dawkins' sons had a chance to be able to have a putback that I think would have tied it or maybe even given UCF the win. 
and the like yelps and screams and just sort of like to be courtside for that and feel everything that was going on in that moment um, was was like emotionally exhausting and I didn't care about either team. So I, I will always remember that as one of the craziest sporting events to have uh, to have been up close in person for. To give a football answer, I will say, in a way, the title game this year, like it, it was a good entertaining game, but I think you also combined it with the fact that because of COVID, it hadn't been in person to a game in a couple of seasons. So to be at that the first game back and for it to game, be that kind of entertaining and exciting at the end was pretty cool. Although just as a fan of the sport, I wish I hadn't been in the press box and had to be like, hmm, yes, excellent play. Mm, very well. I'd rather been like the Georgia coaches who came streaming out of the box to go run down to the elevator to get down there in the celebration, just screaming their asses off. <laughs> that is like, I don't, I don't know how many fans know about like that side of it. That is a sneaky, awesome uh, mm-hmm. thing to witness the winning coaches at a big game like that, them hooting and hollering because the elevators oh. get held for the assistant yes. coaches. Like if you want to be down on the field, you need to do it before the five minute mark or the 10 minute mark. They'll tell you in the press box, there's some moment where it's like, Hey, if you're not in the elevator and down on the field by this moment, you're not going to be there till after the game is over because we're holding it for these coaches. And those assistant coaches are just, woo. I mean, I mean, there's like stains of dip spit from how much they're like screaming. (laughs) And a lot of them are our age. And what's what's a celebration if you're sort of like Mm -hmm. mid 30s to early 40s that you probably shouldn't do on air with your arms where where degeneration X like you definitely see like 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 cross shots going to like they're just fired up. And yeah, man, it's uh, and for the losing ones, um, I mean, they just they're. They're pissed. They're like throwing a, their plate. They're throwing their play sheets and all, all, all the stats that the, the you know the stats people bring them every every quarter and it's looked like a bomb hit in that Alabama coaching box. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. My my wife used to volunteer for LSU's press box because her, her mom uh, you know worked there and uh, she she's got a list of like which coaches were the biggest jerks. She's like, oh, this guy hated him. Like he. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go uh, in from, from long-time viewer, listener, short round. You're a burglar, but can only steal stuff to mildly inconvenience the victims. What are you stealing? Remote controls. Oh! Yeah, that's phone not chargers. Inconvenience. That's, that's a major inconvenience. <laughs> I had no internet or cable for a couple hours the other day, so that's, yeah, no, I wanted to die. I didn't know what to do with my life, but yeah, I would take the remote controls. Phone chargers? Phone chargers. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one, too. That's a really good one. Although that's actually, you're doing them a favor. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> go, go and find the key ring and take all the car keys. That's a safety issue, though. I feel yeah. like like that might not be a minor inconvenience <laughs> if you got a bit. I, I just I think my mind went to like, what what do you get mad if you can't find? You know, like what drives you Sunglasses. absolutely crazy? Ooh. Because my son likes to wear them, you know, pretending I'm like, where did these go? Oh, they're the the winner might be remote controller phone chargers. Yeah. I think honestly, at some point in the last couple of years ago, somebody broke into our house and stole my one Blackhawks hat because it just absolutely disappeared. And I have never been able to find it. And I have been through this house every single orifice and crevice looking for it. And it just completely disappeared. I, I don't know. I there's there's some freedom in admitting that it's just gone. You know, oh Don't yeah, I have. But he's just anymore. thinking about this question is like, I wonder if that's what happened to my Blackhawks hat. Yeah, definitely possible. All right, let's see. Uh, the questions are great. Q 
keep them coming. Might write down a couple for a future mailbag episode. Uh, ooh. Do y'all see any, any ones that you want to grab before we get out of here? The, uh, the one from Gary on uh, Oregon's offensive line against Georgia's defensive line in the opening game I think is kind of interesting. All right, based from Gary, based on the players each team has now, do you think Oregon's offensive line will be able to get a push versus Georgia in both of those teams' 2022 opening game? I think if you're going to get them, you want to get them now, right? Yeah, but, I mean, but the offensive line will be just kind of as raw as the Georgia defensive line. So I don't know. I feel like when they get back, do you think Lanning though has any kind of edge in knowing what beats those guys seeing as how he's like he knows all their weaknesses so he, he's going to be able to scheme up something like how can we you know beat this front because i know what they're weakest at i think that a he does have somewhat of an advantage over georgia for understanding like what bothers them and maybe okay hey thinking back what was our what was our emergency plan if, if this guy went went down right or this guy went down because those guys haven't gone down they've just gone on to the nfl uh, but on the flip side, Kirby has installed this defense at Bama and at Georgia. And I think he very much probably understands which parts of this defense are easy to pick up and which parts of this defense are not easy to pick up uh, early on for a new program. So my guess is that Kirby will be able to talk to Munkin and say, hey, uh, for instance, all this trips to the boundary and stuff. And Florida's, or not Florida, excuse me, but like if you look at what Florida did to Bama, if Richardson could read it out a little bit better or, or, or Jones, like they had a lot more plays wide open. I mean, they, they, they could have dropped a 50 burger. Um, they just, their QBs didn't really read it out. Mullen does a nice job screwing with, with what Nick and, and those guys want to do. And probably because Mullen practiced it, you know, all day against Grantham, right. Who is now back on Bama staff. He's part of that kind of saving tree. They all run that same system. Um, so my guess is that uh, both teams will probably try to put, you know, put the H and the tight end on the same side so that, like, they try to set their defense to the star and, oh, no, it's to the boundary and you got guys who haven't run this thing before and that Georgia will probably do a better job adjusting to it than Oregon will just based on initial uh, install. And then but I think where Georgia can just play the Jalen Carter trump card. This is true. Jalen Carter is, is an absolute <laughs> freak show. Um so they have, what is this looking here? Out of guys who had 500-plus snaps for Oregon offensive line last year, they have six of them. Only only one is gone. And they have a first-team all-pack 12, a third-team all-pack 12, two honorable mention pack 12s, and a, a second-team all-pack 12. Um, now, that's not all from 2020 or 2021. Two of those guys were 2020, which was a four-game year, I think, for that league. So a little sketch, but... Oregon's fairly experienced up front. They should be okay. What about for what about for the opposite? Is the Oregon defensive front going to be okay against Georgia's offensive line? Mm, no, I'm a little skeptical on that. That's that. Yeah. That's what's so funny is like that's where it could really come undone. You know, we we talk about Dan Lanning's institutional knowledge of this Georgia defense, how Oregon's strength with everything that he has inherited, it really is starts up front and being able to win at the line of scrimmage. But I I think that Georgia can probably play bully ball against Oregon's defense. Maybe it w- it would take a phenomenal performance by a talented but 
potentially like is it going to be a size issue? I don't have their heights and weights pulled up right now, but I, I don't have I don't, uh, I don't I have don't Oregon anybody. in my mind as a massive defensive front in terms of uh, height and weight. I don't think either team should run the ball. I think Bo Nix and Stetson Bennett should each drop back 75 times and yes. just let it fly. Yeah. Um, if you look at Georgia's offensive line, um, a guy like Amarius Mims couldn't start there. Right. Right. Yeah. They they have Broderick Jones <laughs> and, 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 and Warren Erickson. And, and, and yeah, exactly. McClendon's back. Van Prawn's back. The only guys who's gone are, are Schaefer and Jamari uh, Sawyer. And Jamari was a really damn good player. Not not that Schaefer wasn't. I mean, they're both gone, but that they, they have four of their top six back. So I'm fairly confident Georgia will be good on the offensive line. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's do one more. This question is from Morgan. Do you think if Louisville were to look for another head coach, do you think Jeff Brom would say no again? He just signed an extension deal. Yeah, I don't know. It's going to depend on the buyout on that extension, but. but I don't know. Like, honestly, it'll probably depend on how Purdue does this year. Like, if, like, at the time when that Louisville job came open and they flirted with Brom and he turned him down and he stayed at Purdue, things were looking very trending up for the Boilermakers in that program with the talent he was able to bring in. I feel like they've kind of plateaued a little bit recently. So maybe it would be more appealing for him to go home. But also, if I'm looking at Louisville right now in that athletic department and a lot of the stuff that's been happening there, Maybe he'd just rather avoid it altogether. Ooh. I I will say... Um, Y'all figure your own business out and come back and call me in a little bit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to find the buyout here as I talk, but I will say that uh, Louisville has done a really good job with NIL. Like, they're not one of the flashiest NIL programs out there, but they have done a good job with it. I think recruits recognize that they do do a good job with NIL. It's... Among ACC programs, one of the better as far as like the private funding it has, it's not one of these just solely reliant on the TV contract. They do have some big donors. I agree with Tom, though, like the instability <laughs> in the athletic department seems never ending. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. that could be a detractor. And from everything I know, and I, I don't I'm not I don't know Jeff Brown, but like people at Purdue are happy with him. And from my understanding is he's happy there. So I don't feel like he's oh, looking for a situation like- to get out. That, that would be another reason why the instability would be a turn off. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, ah, uh, everything institutionally at Purdue is, I'm, I'm not as, I'm not worried. I'm not looking over my shoulder. I'm not trying to figure Everybody, out what yeah. kind of the power dynamics are. Like, every, I, everybody's I pulling in the same direction. Yeah. My, my read on Purdue from an athletic department standpoint is, uh, is definitely a, a I mean, little bit. Look at Matt Painter. He's been there for like 85 years. You know what I mean? It's like Purdue is not the kind of athletic department where it's constantly trying to churn out coaches and you know it's like you're not doing good enough it's like nah man we're pretty happy with what you're doing and we think you can do even better so let's do it together something to be said for that you can follow him on twitter at tom Fennell. you can follow him at bud elliott three you can follow me at chip underscore patterson gentlemen thank you very much Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or 
I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.